Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Christy Bolingbrook. Christy is currently serving as the first executive and artistic director of the National Center for Choreography at the University of Akron. Before landing in Akron, she held roles as the deputy director for advancement at San Francisco-based ODC. She was the director of marketing for the Mark Morris Dance Group in Brooklyn. She holds multiple degrees, including a master's degree from the Institute for Curatorial Practice and Performance at Wesleyan University. She has her finger on the pulse of dance like few people I know. And fun fact, Christy appeared on the very first live stream show many years ago, vintage live stream, if you will, when I co-hosted a show with Sydney Skybetter called Skynova. Without further ado, Christy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much, y'all, for having me. Hey, it's good to meet you. I'm going to stick to our script since I don't have anything to go off topic with you because this is our first time meeting. We'll find something. Don't worry. I'm pretty sure. I'll wait to talk about basketball since you're from Akron. So our first question for our guests is always, how are you and how's your community doing right now? Doing okay as best as we possibly can. I think what I'm really appreciating in my community here in Akron always has been strong in supporting hyperlocal, but really supporting the local businesses and how they're stepping up above and beyond to find creative ways of getting things out to us, whether that's moving to online subscriptions or only being open for select holidays and then selling out, which is something we think about all the time in the performing arts, but I don't know that the restaurant industry had thought of previously. So I'm really appreciating that about my immediate community. Can you talk to us a little about NCC and your work and how do you usually sort of describe yourself? I identify as a recovering marketer turned curator and executive leader. So I often think about audience experience and the bridge between communities and artists. And NCC Akron was something that didn't exist when I entered the workforce. Even the first National Center for Choreography, MANSI, down at Florida State University in Tallahassee, didn't exist when I entered the workforce. So what excited me about coming to this position was the opportunity to build something from scratch, but also to have a platform that I could support as many artists as possible. Well, Christy, one of the really interesting things that we've talked about over the years was in being able to, being the first leader of this organization, you got to set it up how you wanted, or largely how you wanted. What was important to you as you were crafting what the organization looks like, its values, its culture? How did you go about that? And then what might be changing or how might you be rethinking that in light of what's going on in the world? So I moved to Akron and started in my position in the fall of 2016. And a lot of the heavy lifting was done before I got here. We have a three-way founding partnership, including the University of Akron Dance Cleveland, the premier dance presenter across Northeast Ohio and much of the Rust Belt that's just 45 minutes from here, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. And it was through their feasibility studies, could a National Center for Choreography exist in Ohio? What would that look like? And then a very unique seeding of a $5 million endowment that they set up through the Miami Foundation and incorporated NCC Akron as a discrete nonprofit that operates in donated space on the university's campus. That complexity alone, that's what I inherited. And I am so grateful and recognize the privilege in that opportunity. I know. 
There'll be follow-up questions. I'm trying to figure out what they might be. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) And then when I arrived, my board, which included pointees from each of the founding partners, said, you're never going to have this opportunity again. So you have almost a year before we have front-loaded a residency or a program to come in. So this is your opportunity to figure out what do you want to do? And we started with bi-monthly meetings and discussions about our curatorial values. What does it mean to be a national center that is not in the physical center of the country or in the perceived center of a field? And I also think a lot about like, what does it mean to be in residence that is not in a transactional way in the same, like I'm giving you a gig, I'm paying you to do something but rather that spirit of reciprocity that comes from really living somewhere or being somewhere. How are you contributing to a community and vice versa, that community is supporting you. And then also just having come out of the dance field and Tim, you and I were on lots of early conversations with emerging leaders for New York Arts and El Naya, shout out about the 501c3 model. Is it dead? Is it not? It's dying a slow death, I think, if anything. People are still asking that question now. But I was really mindful and still continue. That seems to be the third wire to build something. But how do you not become too normalized or institutionalized that you no longer can pivot, you no longer can be responsive to the people you're trying to serve? In terms of your work right now, I still can't figure out one question that's succinct enough to even (laughs) respond to that because that's so juicy. How's your work changed in the last month or so? And has your view on the mission changed? And you did mention when we were in the green room that you were in the process of a strategic plan Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you're wrapping up a strategic plan right now. So Mm -hmm. feel free to throw anything about that in as well. So I was the sole full-time employee up until this past fall. And we would strategically bring in consultants or project managers to scale up when we had larger projects coming in. And in some ways, this moment doesn't feel alien to me for that reason, because the first year we didn't have an office and I worked from home. I often travel two or three times a month to see artists all over the country. So I used to say, wherever I am, that is the center. And so we were just starting to expand our staff and we had built out a six-month staffing experiment, including a graduate assistant and uh, three part-time individuals that we were already asking, like, so how much time do we need additional staff and labor? How much is that when we have artists on the ground? How much of that is in between? And what are those roles? So in trying not to be too institutionalized, I didn't want to just hire a development director. It's really about, especially starting from this kernel, it's about how do you build out a team where it's not their first job, but they also aren't so seasoned that they have rightfully accrued a moment where they can say, you know what, I want to work at this level, I want to make this much money, and I'll take a couple of meetings, I'll write a couple of grants. So how do you cultivate a middle management team and, mm-hmm. and also a flat landscape from a structural standpoint so that it's not as hierarchical? I'm not the one running all meetings. There's a lot of cross and peer learning too. So we were in the middle of that experiment. And based on when we came in, we already had some individuals who worked remotely. Now we're all working remotely. 
but we're also having to deal with daily things. There were huge thunderstorms and crazy weather in Ohio. This it was actually snowing 30 minutes ago out of nowhere. It was 70 degrees yesterday. And one of our team members is out of electricity. So, okay, great. We're like, we're going to take this day at a time. Keep us posted when you go out and recharge your phone in your car. Crank up the generator. Yeah, exactly. And so I would say that anyone who's been consistent is that we have created a porous structure. So I try not to set up an environment where it's going to be an all hands on deck and we all hit whatever latest modern dance emergency comes through, because that certainly wouldn't be sustainable right now in this moment. But everyone has ideas of what can they work on long term that maybe now they have more time to put it to. And what are the things that they can actually anchor, whether that's our weekly team meeting, we have a weekly one-on-one with each team member and myself, that we can continue to sort of feed the machine without letting it run away with us or completely be stuck now that it's held back. And then from a programmatic standpoint, we were in the middle of a large collaboration, the first phase with the university where we had identified NCC Akron as a discrete 5013 can work more nimbly and quickly, especially than institutions when they're trying to hire up staff. So we've been partnering with the School of Dance, Theater, and Arts Administration and had launched a capsule series called 21st Century Dance Practices, where we had guest artists that would come in for a week. They would teach basically a takeover of the three intermediate advanced modern classes And they didn't have to fit in modern technique. It was also about disrupting the binary idea of aesthetic as ballet or modern, but to illuminate the spectrum. And we were halfway through that. And then face-to-face classes were suspended. And I really appreciate, as my colleague Valerie Eiffel, who is the faculty of record, she was like, okay, we're trying to still move forward. Everyone's been asked to move their instruction online, and that's going to look different for each of us. And I said, well, what would be your minimum? Can we still hire these artists? Can we still create jobs and pay them? Because most of them work outside of an academic institution. Mm -hmm. So we identified every Friday for the five remaining weeks in the semester, they have a guest virtual class. And I can't think of anything more 21st century than adapting your dance class to be on the internet. And what actually worked for us was the opportunity. We were able to add two more spots than we had originally had lined up because we had changed the structure of what our partnership would be. Originally, we would just have had a couple remaining, but now we're able to work with all five and still provide that experience for the students and provide an opportunity for artists as well. Chrissy, you're one of the most well-connected people that I know in the dance field working at the Parsons Dance Company. You were working at Mark Morris when we first met. And since then, I don't work directly for a dance company. And you know everyone and you see everything. And usually I just nod along when you mention names and what you're seeing. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. What are you hearing from the field? What are you hearing from friends and colleagues in the dance field right now? You've talked about some experiments in shifting things online. When you're talking to the community, where are they? What's on their mind? I'll try not to generalize, but point out a couple of things and then maybe ask some rhetorical questions where I hope the field is thinking. I think everyone came at this and needed to be given the space to sort of process or mourn where they are in that moment. When we 
first went into a suspension of face-to-face instruction, we actually had Stephen Petronio Dance Company coming to Akron. And we had a conversation. Do you still want to come? Instruction has been suspended, but we have seven studios. If you want to work in them, you can spread the dancers out even. And there were less than 10 of them. So at that moment in time, we did make the decision and they came. They stayed as long as they could until it felt like they needed to go back home to make sure while they still could, really. Because that's the uncertainty is knowing like what is going on in one part of the country might not be the same experience somewhere else. And things were starting to escalate in New York. I'm really proud that we were able to still fully pay them, regardless if they stayed for the whole week or not, because that's the position that we're in. What I have heard from other artists and presenters is that this moment, so not only mourning the performance that would have been, but the moment also, it tends to highlight the cracks that we already knew were in our system, mm-hmm. but yet we pushed on. And one of those in particular has been a presenter or venue may pay a certain fee. And that fee includes maybe it's hotel and travel and then something to pay the dancers for that week. And the presenter in the moment, if they're canceling two weeks out or a month out, they were like, okay, so sorry, we're going to have to cancel. We'll try and reschedule. But the artist then would take that moment to say, well, I've already incurred expenses. We wouldn't have rehearsed for that gig if we didn't have your gig on the docket. And I think it truly was illuminating for presenters. Like that's how tightly budgeted our artist-presenter relationship is. And there's no one answer out of that because I'm empathetic for both parties because they come from different financial realities and some may not be able to be as generous immediately as others because they're also tightly budgeted. But I think that little aha and that realization, I hope that we carry that forward and come up with better solutions. So recognizing that the normal was in fact broken and that's not maybe everything we're trying to return to. The other question that came up with some independent artists who were maybe going to have big breaks, they had received major grants this year, and now they're still hopeful and want to postpone. But from a cash flow position, because they just incorporated in the last year after being fiscally sponsored for a decade, they're wondering what's best practice for my artists. And I was like, well, that's the reality. There is no best practice. So you have a choice and what do you want to do? So I'm hearing artists that we're talking about, like, I want to take care of my cast and collaborators. So they're actually thinking about advancing them for work that they Mm -hmm. might not do until July or August. And that's a unique position to be in if you can think about from a cash flow for them. I also find it interesting I'm hearing also that for some dance companies, they maybe kept the dancers at sort of arm's length from the administrative day-to-day. And now, and I saw this a little bit in the 2008 Great Recession too, now it's like, oh, you really want to understand? Like, we need to raise $30,000 in order to pay you through this time. And the dancers have been more active. Some colleagues have said it feels like the dancers are working for marketing or the dancers are working for the development department because the dancers are really doing a lot of the labor to put out those crowdfunding opportunities and engaging their friends and family and to some great success. So I don't know if that's sustainable moving forward, but those are some of the things that I'm seeing right now 
in the moment. And then from a performance standpoint, the thing that I worry about is what was also in our field is everyone had a different decision-making timeline. I often would tell artists, it might be 15 to 18 months from when you and I have a discussion to when you may actually hit the ground in Akron. There are some entities that they're doing 40 or 50 weeks a year of programming. And so for them, it's much faster, it's much tighter. And if we can't be decisive to move forward, so if they can't, if they're only canceling shows month by month, it's like they're reliving the trauma of cancellation over and over again. And I worry that that'll hold some of us back in the field from being able to think about rebounding and reimagining the next step. I think it's worth rematching. Last week, we had Laura Zabel, Executive Director of Springboard for the Arts, on another great guest. And we talked about very quickly after South by Southwest was canceled and, and conferences started to cancel that Springboard put out ethical cancellation principles yeah. for people to consider as they're wrestling with these very challenging times and challenging decisions or difficult decisions, I should say. Whether it's the ethical recommendations or some of the small micro victories as CARES Act and different things get passed both federally and at the state level. The inclusion, finally, of self-employed and the contractors, I hope that's something else that we don't let go. Because it was already, the gig economy was here. It was the majority of our workforce, not just in the arts, but growing more broadly across sectors. And so those are some of the shifts that I think that we should hold on to as far as like, okay, at least we got that into the conversation because that would not have been part of the discussion 10 years ago. I feel like we succumb to the concept of gig economy work in a way that like we never really had a national conversation about that because that transition from that work being someone's side gig, that's how it was always designed. And then all of a sudden we had people fall into that as full-time work without any of the sort of safety net apparatus. It was never intended to be that. And yet I feel like in the arts sector, everyone I talk to who's an artist is doing side gig work, whether it's the majority of their income comes from working in a restaurant or driving Uber or whatever. I just feel like this is a time for us to stop and pause and really think about, is this really what we want our workforce to look like? All the organizations that did a lot of work to get the freelancers and gig economy workers in that bill, really big deal. And now we're starting to see states augment that. So mm-hmm. New Mexico is doing, I think everyone, the first 2,000 people who apply get 750 bucks if they're self-employed. So we're starting to see states augment that money as well. I keep thinking about Aretha Franklin in terms of cash flow because she didn't sing unless she got paid. Like she got her cash up front. And I keep wondering when artists are going to start sort of moving back into that paradigm that so many singers for years and years, it's just a best practice. Don't invest any rehearsal time until you've got some sort of capital to cover that time in your efforts. So I think your piece around contracting, it'd be interesting to think about what does sort of a new contracting agreement for performing artists, like what would that look like? And I know that makes it hard for presenters, but I feel like and my knowledge is limited, but I feel like presenters are often in a better position financially than the creatives that are working with them. Well, they're just in a different flow. Part of my work that started when I got here and I've tried to continue this is to do a listening tour around the country, which is kind of a focus group to test everything I think I know about what it takes to make work. And is that the same in Charlotte, North Carolina, as it is in New York City or Chicago? And what struck me as I've been in some rooms, I usually partner with a presenting institution and I invite up to six to eight artists and we go around the room. Okay, what's your average budget size? And if you're project based, include that. And if you're incorporated, include your org budget. 
And I've been in the room where the range was $34,000 to $2 million. And then if I try to insert what is the average budget size for a lot of our presenting institutions, it might only be $700,000. So I thought then like, would a $2 million arts organization realize that they may have more power when they go to a presenter? Would they Mm -hmm. ask different questions? So it's not just the transactional, I'm trying to get these expenses covered. So I think the shorthand is that the presenting institutions, they have a different kind of stability but what they give up sometimes is flexibility. And that's what I'm excited to sort of nurture in artists is to really own their flexibility to do what we've been doing at NCC Akron is experiment quickly and fail fast. Mm-hmm. Anything we do, we don't have to do again if it's not really satisfactory and beneficial on the other side of it. And a lot of times our larger institutions can't take those kinds of risks. I love that you brought up power in that conversation. Are you having explicit conversations about sort of money and time and the power dynamic that those things create? I'm really mindful of my role and relationship to artists with what I can speak to. So when we set up something or have a conversation, start to say, we're going to build something together, we will start to have a monthly discussion and it's very generative. And I'm sure artists may think I'm losing my marbles and repeating myself over and over again, but I always start it by saying anything I suggest is merely a suggestion, not an expectation. So it is your discretion to say, I'm not interested in that, or what about this instead, or run with it if it really is satisfying to you. The other thing, just from an operational standpoint that we've achieved, so in going into our strategic planning process, we did do an assessment of what have we achieved in the last four plus years. And one of the things is that almost all of our programs are somehow shared, whether that is an artist directed grant, they've gotten a grant from someone else and then NCC Akron matches it to make a program happen. Or we have another partner that has a vested interest in exploring dance on film. So I'm trying to also dissipate the idea that NCC Akron has all the money and we just are the bank, but rather like how can we aggregate resources is one Mm -hmm. of our core values. And to me, that's a different kind of way to share power and be able to live that through. So we're looking for those opportunities. It's, I think if that's what I worry about artists right now, feeling the immediate squeeze, they were already pushing against institutions. Yeah. And so then to have this sort of like backlash and feel it's like you lost your grip while you're already climbing up against the hill. We're going to take a little bit of a turn here before we close our show today, because a number of years ago, I also co-hosted a live stream And Christy was one of the first guests on that live stream. And it was something that I co-hosted with a friend, Sydney Skybetter. We call it Skynova because we just made up a name. And Christy, I don't know if you took this photo, but you certainly were right there in the room as we interviewed Robert Battle, artistic director of Alvin Ailey. This was like maybe a day after it was announced that he was the new AD. And how far we've come. Also, this was actually recorded in my hotel room 
at the Dance USA conference, I think in DC, and we yep. just invited all of our friends to be on this show, and we just like put it online. There's about 25 of us behind whoever <laughs> took that picture. Yeah, it's like all crowded <laughs> in, and then yeah, it's like Robert, Sydney, and I are there, and I'm fairly confident the first question that we asked Robert, this might have been one of the first interviews that he did after being appointed, was "What color are unicorns?" <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, that didn't last. Can I offer up this perspective because I think it's relevant now with that, Tim? Please. I mean, we were doing that in a hotel room because the existing structure, I'm not throwing shade, but the existing structure of the conference couldn't envision space for this wacky, what do you mean you're going to film this and it's not going to come from our institutional voice? And that was the days of social media where any institution was trying to really grip onto their message and they, Mm -hmm. they were not willing to experiment with it. Obviously, we've evolved as a field with social media. And then when I think about the moment and how many people are offering free classes online and doing different things. And it was within five years that Sky Nova became a more central part, (laughs) at least publicly, as part of the Dance USA conference, too. So these things, it's like, just because there is an institutional space for it, can you try it? And then how will it morph? I'm really curious, like, how will online classes continue after this moment when people can actually record them in a studio? I'm really interested, too, in how it's challenging our field to think about capacity. I've logged into a meditation class, which I normally would be a little wary of, if I'm to be honest, because I'm more tricks, less ohm. But with that, you know, because then there's like 12 of us in a room and you're really self-conscious. There were 600 people logged on. That's a totally different idea. Dance Church out of Seattle, they've been doing live streams on Wednesdays and Sundays. Thousands of people. Like it's changing our ideas of what capacity could be. It's not going to work for everyone to move all of their shows online or all of their classes online. But new opportunities and avenues are being availed to us. And it just takes one person to film it in their living room or hotel room. You got to get started somewhere. There's a power struggle happening right now about that because institutions, and we're all affiliated with large educational institutions, they are not going to let that go easily. No. They are not going to let legitimacy enter the online space until they're ready for it. And so the question for me becomes, how do we organize and how are we savvy enough to form new virtual institutions that carry the same sort of legitimacy and offer the same educational value as the ones that we've ceded power to already? And I mean, that it's happening right now. I think we were talking about it. It might have been with Laura Zabel again around real estate and educational institutions, how like they need those physical spaces. There's a lot actually like of capital invested in maintaining physical spaces. It's a lot easier to raise a capital campaign and build out a building when (laughs) you wish that they would raise a line item for a faculty position. Exactly. So I think this is a really interesting time to be thinking about those power dynamics. As we land the plane, Christy, what are your parting thoughts for us? The same both personally as well as professionally, this opportunity of resetting, of trying new things, and really thinking about what do I want to carry with me to the other side of this and what do I want to let go during this period? And I would offer that up for everyone. Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for being a friend for all these years. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks, you all too. 
continue the Work Shouldn't Suck Live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Mara Walker, Chief Operating Officer at Americans for the Arts. Miss us in the meantime, you can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>